0: I'm Robert Scherzer, and we're talking about glaucoma for the week ending April 17th, 2009. Today we're talking with Mark Lesk, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at University of Montreal, where he is also Director of Vision Research at Masoner Rosemont Hospital. And our topic today is systemic vascular endothelial dysfunction, and I guess how, to, how that pertains clinically to glaucoma. Welcome. Hi. So, what can you tell us about this topic
1: okay well the question was concerning one aspect of vascular problems relating to glaucoma there are several aspects of blood flow problems that relate to glaucoma uh, there's a lot of evidence that there are bulk blood flow problems in the eye uh, there's not adequate blood flow in glaucoma in the optic nerve in the choroid and in the retina uh, and that is seen when the blood flow is measured in the eye. Um, but very large epidemiological studies now show quite clearly uh, that systemic blood pressure is an important uh, risk factor for uh, glaucoma, for both the incidence, um, the incidence, the prevalence, and the progression of glaucoma. Um, and presumably this translates this it's a low blood pressure that's usually the problem and presumably this translates translates into pure, poor blood flow in the eye
0: um was this all times during the day or is this what people have talked about about nocturnal dipping of the diastolic blood pressure
1: well most of the epidemiological studies have been done uh, with daytime blood pressures And so they don't don't even take into account how it might get worse at night. But presumably nocturnal hypotension is even a bigger issue. But the issue that I'd like to address today relates more to a more specific uh, type of blood flow problem. So rather than bulk blood flow to the choroid or the optic nerve or blood pressure problems, it relates to uh, an abnormal functioning of the vascular endothelium. So in the blood vessels, in the eye as elsewhere, Uh, the endothelial cells play a very important role in regulating whether the blood vessels are dilated or constricted. And uh, what's been found in the eye is just like in every other tissue in the body, that the main controlling uh, um, molecules that control uh, whether the blood vessels are dilated or constricted are are nitric oxide, which is a potent vasodilator, and endothelin, particularly particularly endothelin-1, which is a peptide hormone, Um, which, uh, generally speaking, constricts blood vessels. And so you have the balance between nitric oxide dilating the blood vessels and endothelin, which is constricting the blood vessels, which comes into play. And when the balance between the two is is inappropriate, then you'll have too much vasoconstriction or not enough vasodilation, and then you'll have a compromise in in blood flow. So Uh, is
0: this something you've been measuring in your lab?
1: Well, we measure um, bulk blood flow in general. Um, and the way we we tag into endothelial dysfunction is through vasospasm. So one of the main one of the main hallmarks of, of vascular endothelial dysfunction is vasospasm. Vasospasm is actually a fairly well known phenomenon uh, in medicine, in internal medicine, and it manifests itself in a number of different uh, medical conditions. Coronary artery disease. You can have coronary. You can have coronary artery spasm, which is a vasospastic phenomenon which is very well known in uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages are often vasospastic. Uh, Raynaud's phenomenon is vasospastic. Many forms of migraine are vasospastic. And so there are a number of diseases that are like well known. And when I say vasospasm, what I'm referring to is an inappropriate constriction of blood vessels in response to either some type of stress or to cold. Um, so in our laboratory, we can test patients Um, in we can put their hand in cold water we can measure the blood flow in their hands and then we know by the response of the blood flow in the hand to the cold water whether they're vasospastic or not and it's quite easy to differentiate vasospastic from non-vasospastic patients and then so we can assume then the patients that are vasospastic have an endothelial dysfunction and then we can look at different aspects of, of their glaucoma and try to understand how their glaucoma differs, uh, how the glaucoma differs in patients who are vasospastic from those who are not.
0: So does this guide your treatment methods based on whether a patient is vasosp- vasospastic?
1: Um, currently, I don't use, it, use that on a regular basis you know, to, to apply clinically. It's really a more of a, a research, um, something we do in research in order to better understand the basis for glaucoma. Uh, what some other investigators have done, uh, they've done. there's a number of really very interesting studies uh, that demonstrate that, that in glaucoma patients, there is not just a vascular endothelial dysfunction in the eye, but also throughout the body. And so what they've done is they've compared uh, glaucoma patients to non-glaucoma patients, and they've looked at the function of the vascular endothelium in the arm, For example or they've looked at the function of the vascular endothelium in um, some people have taken biopsies of uh, gluteal fat and they've looked at the arteries there so they looked in vitro in their arteries they found abnormalities in the nitric oxide uh, system um, which is which are present in the uh, glaucoma patients and that suggests then that um, that the vascular endothelium is abnormal not just in the eye but also throughout the body Um, and there's, there are abnormalities both in the nitric oxide system and in the endothelin system, and a number of other um, mediators have also been found to be abnormal in glaucoma. Um, so we don't really use it clinically, but uh, we and other investigators are hoping that eventually uh, we'll be able to design new drugs that can modulate this vascular endothelial dysfunction to the benefit of our glaucoma patients.
0: Great, there's also been some talk that you can't really distinguish Vascular from uh, from from pressure in glaucoma that there may actually not that they're two different factors but they're interrelated.
1: Yeah. So you
0: address that.
1: So there's some there's some really really interesting studies. One of the most interesting studies on that goes back to 1990, and it was done by Stephen Drance in Vancouver, and he took about um, 70 glaucoma patients, and he did a battery of tests on them, including testing for vasospasticity over responsiveness to cold, uh, and looking for factors for atherosclerosis, and he divided them into two groups, atherosclerotic patients and vasospastic patients, and then he looked at, he did something very simple, he looked at the dose effect of IOP. So he looked to see how much damage there was to the visual field and he did the relationship between that and the maximum known intraocular pressure for those patients. What he found in the atherosclerotic patients was that there was no relationship between the, how high the maximum IOP was and how much visual field damage there was. But in the vasospastic patients, there was a very nice, strong, linear relationship between the Tmax, maximum known IOP, and the visual field mean defect, suggesting that the while the atherosclerotic patients seem to be somewhat IOP independent in their damage, the vasospastic patients uh, seem to have IOP dependent glaucoma. And so, what that suggests from that study is that um, in vasospastic patients uh, there is a dose effect between IOP and the amount of damage, and that this the the damage the IOP dependent damage is somehow related. To the vascular problem. Uh, We extended those studies um, by looking at other aspects of of ocular strain or optic nerve head strain, and we found again in a much larger study of about 300 patients that vasospastic patients had a very nice, had had much more damage in their visual field uh, if they had more optic nerve head strain, as determined by not just intraocular pressure but also other biomechanical factors such as. Uh, Eye wall thickness, axial length, and ocular elasticity. Um, And we also looked at the relationship between uh, IOP and optic nerve blood flow. And what we found was that um, if you lower the intraocular pressure uh, in glaucoma patients, then there's an improvement in. if you lower the intraocular pressure in glaucoma patients, there's an improvement in optic nerve head blood flow in general. Uh, the, the improvement in optic nerve head blood flow is much larger if the patients are vasospastic. And so when the intraocular pressure was high in the vasospastic pressure patients, then the optic nerve head blood flow was very significantly, much more significantly reduced than the patients who were non-vasospastic. So in other words, in vasospastic patients, the the optic nerve blood flow is much more sensitive to elevated IOP. Uh, and that probably links, we think that that links the, the relationship between vasospasm and IOP. It's through an abnormal control of optic nerve head blood flow.
0: So in terms of the day-to-day treatment of patients, if they're vasospastic, would that change any, anything how they're
1: treated? Right. Well, um, I think the data supports, the literature supports the notion that vasospastic patients uh, benefit uh, from IOP reduction. And so that's something that, you know, rather than saying, oh, you're vasospastic, your glaucoma is caused by vasospasm and we shouldn't look at IOP, I'd say the opposite. The vasospastic patients may be the patients who benefit the most from, you know, downward manipulation of intraocular pressure. And so, you know, we treat them aggressively. Of course, we also treat the non-vasospastic patients aggressively for IOP, especially if they have advanced disease. Um, but what I'm telling you is that I'm not really treating them very much differently from, from the other patients. Which, but, is, which is an important
0: thing because, as you said, a lot of people think, okay, vasospastic, it's pressure independent and there's no point in
1: treating Right, and actually it's probably the opposite that's that's, that's the most true. What, what's, what's striking in this study by Stephen Grants that I mentioned initially was that actually the atherosclerotic patients seem to have IOP-independent glaucoma. And so maybe there's some kind of atherosclerotic phenomenon going on that's damaging the optic nerve head, which doesn't mean that they don't benefit from low intraocular pressures because there may be some benefit there anyways. And the evidence is really not clear enough on whether we should, should be managing these patients differently or not. So I wouldn't change the way I manage them, manage IOP aggressively. Uh, especially when there's advanced disease. Great. Well, thanks so much for being here today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Talking About Glaucoma is produced twice each month by Dr. Robert Schertzer, director of the West Coast Glaucoma Center in Vancouver, British Columbia, and clinical associate professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at the University of British Columbia. Please send comments or suggestions to podcast at iguy.org. That's podcast at iguy.org. Also, check out our website at westcoastglaucoma.com.